This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're in Grand Junction, broadcasting from our studio on Main Street. And about a mile from here, a renaissance is underway. Like in a lot of American cities, what you'd think would be primo real estate, the riverfront, was some of the most blighted. It's part of the reason people used to call this place Grand Junktown. But movers and shakers here hope for a transformation akin to the redevelopment of Denver's Lodo neighborhood. And as in Lodo, the transformation started in part with a beer brewer. All right, we are driving from downtown Grand Junction to the riverfront. And we're going through a pretty industrial area. I see a foundry. And I think there in the distance where you see that clump of trees, I think that's the river. And next to the river front is a brewery. Jim Jeffries, it's so funny that the song whose lyrics are You Might Think I'm Crazy was playing as we walked into this place. Because people thought you were crazy. They're probably right. (laughs) Years and years ago, you saw some potential in the riverfront here in Grand Junction. That's correct. I, I noted that the river was underutilized and people really love rivers. You can just look at places like San Antonio, Austin, places in Maryland. They just developed their riverfronts and they're booming commerce centers now. But that wasn't the case in about 1998. No, there was a lot of vacant land down here. It was just looked abandoned. We had the botanical garden down the street two blocks away. And they were struggling to get customers in the door. The city had realized the potential here, too, and had ordered a big cleanup. What was here in the decades prior? So right next door to us was a uranium mill. They were processing uranium. And that was a source of a lot of pollution. But they had shut down because the the market for uranium was going downhill. Uh, All along the river was junkyards. And there still are a few, but uh, most of them have been cleaned up. So what did people think when you bought these 3.5 acres in 1998? I actually got a pretty favorable nod from the city for building down here. So that was all fine. It's just that I didn't have the money to really build it. And <laughs> the I was, brewery? Yeah, I was searching for people to help me fund it. Because our town is pretty much known for boom and bust cycles. Banks wouldn't touch you? No. They thought I was nuts because this part of town was sort of... Uh, looked upon as a dangerous part of the city. There's a lot of homeless people down here. They like to camp by the river. They're just pretty friendly. They just want to be left alone. What did you tell people who thought you were nuts, as you say? I said, well, you got to be crazy. you got to be crazy to take a chance. I want to make a comparison, and I wonder how you'll react to it. Are you the John Hickenlooper of the Western Slope? The reason I ask that is that our governor, former Denver mayor, Chris, had been a brewer... And he was instrumental, along with others, in revitalizing lower downtown in Denver, really through beer. What do you think of the comparison? Well, I think I'm trying to do the same track as he did, but it's a little bit strong that you compare me to him because he had a lot of success, and I have yet to really see that success. But hopefully I can sell all this off and run for governor. (laughs) Before I head out to the riverfront... I have to taste one of your beers. Sure. Which one should I try? So we're most proud right now of our uh, German-style Kolsch. 
Cheers. Prost. It's time to hop back in the car to see what Grand Junction has planned up and down the riverfront. Now, even though I've only had a taste of beer, I won't be driving. Already, there's a bike trail here, condos going up, and a new amphitheater. This truck belongs to Trent Prawl. He's Grand Junction's public works director. Hi, Trent. How are you guys? Good. It's so funny to me that riverfronts are often in need of redevelopment. I mean, as we heard from Jim, they're places that people want to be. It's by the water, especially in a place that gets as hot as this. And for whatever reason, I mean, way back 125 years ago when the city of Grand Junction was developed, I mean, we, we platted our square mile downtown about a mile north of this. <laughs> and, and over the years, there were just so many sins that were committed down here along the riverfront. Trent Prawl drives us onto a riverfront construction site. This is what Grand Junction is pinning a lot of its economic hopes on. What we've heard over and over again is that they want to diversify the economy, not be so reliant on oil and gas, as one city leader put it, to focus on what's above ground. And already, two outdoors companies are committed to building their headquarters on this land. Rocky Mounts, which makes bike racks and the like, they're actually relocating here from Boulder, and a company that's already in town and has been instrumental in all this, Bonsai Design. They make zip lines around the world. Prawl calls this a Google-like campus, one he hopes will ignite development. And all of this development is about activating our waterfront. And activating bringing, it. And bringing more people to the waterfront so that they can become better stewards of our river. Really, from Palisade all the way to Fruta, there hasn't been anything quite like this. And remember that comparison I made between Lodo and Grand Junction's riverfront? Turns out it wasn't that much of a leap. So this will kind of be the the anchor or the, you know, kind of the Lodo of Denver. We're hoping this has the same potential for growth in our surrounding area and for redevelopment. Of course, you know what that meant for Denver. High housing prices (laughs) and a lot of congestion. Are you inviting big city problems to a place that heretofore has managed to avoid many of them? We have a lot of... Carrying capacity here in the valley. Um, Carrying capacity. You mean space. Space. We've got capacity on our roads. We've got capacity on our sewers, our water systems to handle some of that growth without compromising our quality of life here. A quality of life he hopes will improve not just with a business park, but with more green space along the river, a zip line, even a wave you can surf. Trent Prawl is Grand Junction's public works director. Earlier, we heard from Jim Jeffries of Edgewater Brewery. We'll post photos from our riverfront tour at CPR.org. President Trump's immigration policies have divided the country in recent months. His actions have prompted Democratic protests while pleasing his conservative base. CPR's Sam Brash came to Grand Junction recently to listen to Republicans here. The Fourth of July parade is an annual tradition in Grand Junction. And each year, the local Republican Party makes sure their float stands out. And so we just decorate it. We get the candidates out here. We promote them. And we just rile up the crowd because we love America. That's Deborah Urbish, the secretary for the Mesa County Republican Party. She helps supporters staple on balloons, streamers, campaign signs. The result is a sort of super patriotic hayride. Before it gets moving, I ask Urbish about President Trump and his former policy of separating families at the border. We feel for those kids. We feel for those people. 
We know they want to come to a better place, but they've got to do it the right way. And that's why Irbish places most of the blame on parents who break immigration laws. Knowing that what they're doing is wrong and that they're putting their kids in harm's way. Deborah Urbish came to politics by way of her husband, Bob Urbish. He's also at the parade. It's his job to play music from the bed of the pickup towing the float. So you're the DJ. I am the official DJ. I climb in as we turn onto Main Street. Urbish is headed toward retirement, but still works some as a truck driver. And he worries immigration could lead to a less cohesive country. The key word is are people immigrating to become part of this society? Are they coming here to colonize it? and just make another small country. And that's something Urbish says he sees happening. So does it affect me? Yeah, it does. It affects me when I can't understand the conversation at a table next to me. Urbish adds that border security is a critical concern for him ahead of the midterms. That fits with a recent Reuters poll, which found that just in the last month, immigration has become the top issue for Republican voters. That's not true for every Republican at the parade, though. Kevin McCarney works for a local insurance company. And my real concern is while we're arguing over 2,000 kids, that's what it comes down to, 2,000 kids were separated from their parents. We have 40,000 veterans who are not getting proper care because we won't solve the Veterans Administration problem. But this group of Republicans generally agrees on immigration. They say it's fine if it's legal and if people assimilate. What bothers them is illegal immigration. And in their view, treating that as anything less than a crime dissolves the border and the difference between right and wrong. Just east on I-70, I visit one Republican who relies on migrant labor for his business. Brad Brophy runs B2 Orchards in Palisade. When I show up, I'm greeted by his massive Great Danes. Why Great Danes? You don't have to bend over and pet them. (laughs) Brophy grows peaches and cherries just at the foot of the mesa that towers over Palisade. Each spring, he hires migrant workers from bigger orchards to thin his trees. They're important people to have. Pretty tough to find anybody that you can rely on locally. Really? It's a job that most people don't want to do. Those workers are brought in on temporary visas. Fruit growers have long complained it's a huge bureaucratic pain to get them into the U.S. But Brophy says that's a separate issue from border enforcement, and he supports the president's zero-tolerance approach. What they're doing now, coming and flooding the borders like they're doing, it's just costing the U.S. a lot more money. Where the workers that come here, they're basically on visas, most of them, and they'll come in and they do their job and they go back home. I asked the Mesa County Republicans I talked to whether they knew anyone in the party upset with the president on immigration. And generally, they said no. That might be because those who disagree have already fallen away. The major issue was calling people from an entire country rapists. That's Michael Lentz. He used to be a leader in the Mesa County Republican Party, but resigned after Trump won the Republican nomination. When you start going into that level of dehumanizing an entire people just for the sake of gaining power, that for me is a line that cannot be crossed. Lentz has since moved to the front range for work, and he thinks the core issue for many Republicans isn't really the immigration system. It's the future of the country. Oftentimes, we get stuck into this idea of a fear of a changing America, and fear can lead people to take positions they otherwise would not take. Lentz says he doesn't share that fear, and it's left him wondering whether he still has a place in the Republican Party. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. 
For many here on the Western Slope, immigration is more than a political issue. Last year, we met a Grand Junction High School senior, Diego. He came to the U.S. illegally from Mexico as a child and is temporarily protected from deportation by the DACA program. His idea was to enlist in the military, and we asked him why. Citizenship route, it's easier. It's a lot easier, actually. The whole fighting part's scary, but it's okay. I think everyone goes in scared. Diego had chosen to use a pseudonym in that story last year because he was a minor at the time. He's now an adult, so he's comfortable using his first name, Juan, but not his last. And Juan, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Nice being here. I want to ask about what we just heard in Sam's story there. Grand Junction, a conservative place. Many Republicans here see immigration as cut and dried. Either it's legal or it's not. Is that an attitude you come across living here? Yeah, a lot, actually. And what do you make of the argument? Legal or illegal? There is a way to become a legal citizen, and I do appreciate the ways that we have to become legal citizens. But for some some people and some families, it's not a choice. And I suppose you're referring to yourself to some extent as a child who was brought here. Yeah, exactly. What do you think of the fact that your family brought you here? Did they make the right decision? Is that something that you contemplate from time to time? Uh, I thank them for the decision that they did. I would have been in street violence where I lived, um, poverty, and now I'm graduating. I graduated high school. You know, I'm going on to life, college. I appreciate what they did. Now I speak two languages too, which I appreciate: Spanish and English. Yeah. We heard in that story the idea that that parents bear responsibility if they bring their children to the U.S. illegally and are separated. Uh, your parents brought you here when you were five. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, do you have many memories of that of that early time? Not not many, but I do have some little pieces of it that clicked and stay, but not very many. So it is absolutely true that the United States not only feels like home, but it's basically all that you remember. Yeah, that's all I remember from growing up in elementary school all the way to high school. That's all I remember. Last year, I know you were concerned about President Trump's potential approach to immigration. Uh, Now that his administration has been in office longer, how do you think things compare to, you know, what you feared, maybe? Uh, He talked a lot, and he really hasn't been able to accomplish a lot. Um, He's done a couple good things, but a couple not-so-good things. Give me some examples. What are some good things he's done and some not-so-good things? Not separating families, I think, is a great thing because it traumatizes children so I, immigration, too. He's worked with immigration officers and he's tried to put immigration laws, but they really haven't passed through. Uh, some bad things. He still insults, you know, Hispanics, specifically Mexicans, and it continues on. You're pleased that he ended the child separation approach? I, I am. I am. Uh, but you think that he, he really hasn't changed his tone when he talks about immigrants? Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, that's correct. You have protection under the DACA program, as we said, but your parents are here illegally with no protection. Have their lives changed under the Trump administration? You know, uh, they've been a lot more careful with certain things, you know, watching themselves even closer, making sure we're safe, making sure we're doing the right things. What does that look like? Uh, Precautions like being home by 10. You know, if my parents go out, they won't drink at all. They... uh, they take care of us pretty well. They especially look at my little sisters and make sure they're not in the street too late. 
When you say home by 10, that's true for them, but do they also make sure you're home by 10? Oh, yeah, definitely. It sounds boring for someone your age. You get used to it. You get used to yeah, it. Yeah. That's the way you've come to live. Yeah. Last time we spoke, you were a senior at Grand Junction High School. Your life then was about soccer, a fast food job, getting ready for college. Catch us up just a little bit on what's happened since then. Still into soccer, heavily into soccer. Uh, you know, I, I'm at the fun park now. This is a kind of water park here. It, and fun park, you know, go-karts and stuff like that. That's where you're working. Uh, yeah. And now, and, and still a month away from college now, so you're getting anxious and nervous for college, first day, freshman year, so. What's on the horizon in terms of higher education? What can you tell us? I want to pursue medicine. That's what I want to do. Become a doctor? Uh, yeah, become a doctor. Uh, preferably a surgeon, but we'll see if it, that changes, but that's what... I want to do right now. How are you meeting the high costs of college? Is that an obstacle? It is. A lot of scholarships, you know, uh, saving, working and saving up money, you know, having a budget too, you know, paycheck is what, whatever, you know, take a, a fourth of that and put it into the college fund every week since I was 16. I think that because you have DACA protection, you are not eligible for like FAFSA, the federal loans, things like that. I'm not eligible for any federal loans, uh, no FAFSA. So that has to come from private scholarships, private, if it does at all. Yeah, private mm -hmm. scholarships or private loans. Do you have doubts about your future? The DACA program itself, of course, is tied up in the courts at this point. The president has sought to end it. What, what does that do to your state of mind and, your, I don't know, your ability to plan? Uh, you know, I can't plan too far ahead because I don't know how far DACA will go. Uh but also, I got to stay positive, think that I will still be in the country, hopefully. Hopefully, I'll be graduated from college, you know. Hopefully, I'll be more mature if the DACA program does end. Because I still rely so much on my parents. And if I get deported because the DACA program ends, they already have my information everything. I'll be, I'll be um, in Mexico not knowing what I'm doing. Where would you be in Mexico? I mean, do you have given thought to where you, you'd land? Uh, wherever one of my uncles lives. Leave your uncles. Uh, yeah, because my grandpa's too old to know what's going on. So we played that clip from last year. You were talking about plans to join the military to gain U.S. citizenship. Mm -hmm. Is that is that still an option for you? Uh, now, since Trump ended uh, something, uh, he doesn't allow immigrants to join the military for citizenship or residency anymore. Uh, I don't know why. He, he never gave an explanation, but he just did it. With the Obama administration, that was an option, but now it's not. It seems to me that it was an option under the Obama administration if you had special skills, which included foreign language skills that did not extend to Spanish. So I, I'm wondering if it was ever a solid option or just something you kept in the back of your mind. You had to, you know, you had to do, you had to perform, perform pretty well on your uh, on your military entrance exam. But it's not a path that you're currently pursuing. No, not at all. Uh, so you have this DACA protection. Uh, the program, indeed is in limbo. How often do you check in on it? Are you reading the news? Do you seek the advice of an attorney? Talk to me about the role that it plays like day to day. Uh, I don't do it day to day because it's pretty consistent. It's been consistent since the Trump administration. You know, uh -huh. we're going to end DACA or we're going to continue DACA, but we're going to hold this hostage. That's the whole that's been the whole story. Uh, since the Trump administration. So I don't check up on the news lately. I did meet with an attorney here in town, an immigration attorney. 
Uh, I have no way for citizenship. Uh, no other path that you see. No, no other currently, because I'm so because I'm young and my parents aren't citizens. I'd have to graduate college to show I am a viable source for this for the community and for the United States for me to be eligible for residency. You're sure that if you demonstrate that, you're at least in the running? Uh, at least in the running, yes. That's a possibility. Yeah. And would that be the equivalent of a green card? Yes. Okay. How often do you talk about this with your parents? Uh, it's usually a daily thing. Yeah? yeah. How, do, how does it come up? Uh, usually, like, you know, renewing DACA pretty soon because it's about to end. Uh, oh, you're coming up for your for, renewal. I'm coming up for my renewal. Okay. This and is something you have to renew every once in a while. Every two years. And is that something you think will happen? Have you heard about other folks up for renewal and what has happened to them? Renewal still open for people that have DACA status. So uh, most likely it will happen. Uh, it ends in January. So I actually have to do it this month because I have to do it five months ahead to be able to have my Social Security still. So it takes time to get that back and that renewal back. Before we go, this is the, I think, third time you've come on to our show to talk about your immigration status and what it means to you. Why have you wanted to put yourself out there? I feel like it's important. Some kids like to stay back because they're scared. Uh, and I totally get that. They're protecting themselves and their families. But I want people to know the whole story, not just parts of it. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Juan is a college student in Grand Junction. His parents brought him to the U.S. from Mexico illegally as a child. He's one of the approximately 17,000 people in Colorado with temporary protection from deportation under DACA. It's the Obama-era immigration program. President Trump has moved to end it. But as we said, that effort is tied up in the courts. He's the longest-serving sheriff in Colorado. And this week, he might be one of the busiest. He's been searching for a missing hiker. He's also had to deal with wildfires and mudslides. I'm talking about San Miguel County Sheriff Bill Masters. He's been in office for 38 years in the area around Telluride, and he's seeking an 11th term with no opposition. Sheriff Masters spoke with me from his office. Sheriff, thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. For those who might not be familiar with San Miguel County, tell us more about the area you police. I mean, Telluride, the county seat, is well known, but you also have towns like Ophir and Placerville. Sure. You know, police is always the wrong word to use when describing a sheriff. You know, we have a lot of different duties besides being a, a um, peacekeeper. We also do our search and rescues, as we mentioned, and wildfire control and, and run the county jail and serve the courts. So there's a lot of different issues. And police is a little bit of a narrow term. Oh. Anyway, San Miguel County is 1,200 square miles. Uh, we have 800 miles of county road and state uh, highways. And... Uh, it stretches from the mountains above Telluride, west to the Utah line. We have uh, the little communities of Egner. Egner is a community right on the uh, Utah line. And then we also have the, the little town of Placerville, where I used to live. It has a, uh, a little general store, a liquor store, and a post office. I don't know what more you really need. And <laughs> uh, then, of course, uh, Sawpit and Ofer, and we say, oh, for God's sakes, and, uh, and of course, uh, the old mining town of Telluride. And a pretty wide array of people there. Yes, there are. You know, first of all, the community being 
the people that live out in Egner and the, the ranching community of Norwood and the entire island and the, the uh, mountain village. We have the um, super wealthy that, that have their second homes here, movie stars, uh, the, the captains of industry all seem to enjoy having homes here. And then, of course, we have the, the working people. And as, as time has, has gone on, really very few people in between. So oh. It's hard for many of the working people to live here. Most of the deputy sheriffs, for instance, live in Norwood, and, and most of our communications and, and correctional officers uh, uh, live in Montrose and, and commute that 70 miles a day one way. Before you came to Telluride, you grew up in Los Angeles, earned a criminal justice degree. But it's my understanding you had no intention of going into law enforcement until a rock crushed your car. My idea was uh, after college, I was going to join the LAPD. I grew up in Los Angeles, but I was out of the service and I thought, you know, I'm just going to take a year and go skiing. I've always been a skier since a very young age. And so I um, decided to move to Telluride for the winter. And after that, I really enjoyed Telluride and I thought I'd stay. And in the springtime, I had a job cutting a new ski run. And by accident, uh, some rocks had come off the canyon wall there outside the saw pit where I was living and crushed my car. And so I was hitchhiking back and forth, and the town marshal picked me up one night. And I'd probably been drinking, and I was carrying a chainsaw <laughs> going, trying to get home because I didn't have a, have a car. And he picked me up and uh, offered me a job by the time we got a few miles out of town uh, <laughs> because I had a, degree, a criminal justice degree and so I started working there in Telluride as a kind of Barney in a uh, two-person marshal's office. Yeah, this is a reference to Mayberry, and uh, yes. I couldn't help but think of the similarity myself. You were appointed under sheriff of San Miguel County in 1979 and appointed sheriff the next year. Uh, you ran for sheriff and won two years later, and uh, you've now been elected ten times. You've run under the banner of three political parties in that time, Republican, Libertarian, Democratic. Uh, in fact, you became the nation's first Libertarian sheriff in 1998. Uh, since then, you've also run as an independent. Uh, is it that you've been unable to settle on a political philosophy, or has it been a matter of political expedience? Oh, it's a little bit of both. You know, I was a Libertarian when I moved to Telluride, but when the sheriff that I was working for resigned to become a county commissioner. He was a Republican, so it was a Republican office. Hmm. And the commissioner said that they'd appoint me, but I had to be a Republican. They wanted <laughs> <Okay>. a Republican. <laughs> so I said, I don't really care. I'll become a Republican. And I ran as a Republican a couple of times, but I wasn't really being honest to my feelings. And I felt more inclined toward limited government. And being a police officer, often you see the, the fallacy of uh, legislators passing more and more laws as if that's going to change human behavior. And, it, you know, there's 30,000 laws in the state of Colorado. God knows who they, what they all are. There's 400 different traffic violations that somebody can commit in Colorado. And it just seems like we've gone way overboard. You know, our culture started with 10 laws and and now we have, just in Colorado, 30,000. And, and trying to regulate human behavior through legislation, I think, is really difficult. 
I am a Democrat now, and I, I just did that out of expediency more than anything else. The Libertarian Party isn't very strong in Colorado. And I found um, whoever the governors might be, the Republican or Democrat or the senators or the representatives, kind of dismissed me as kind of a nutcase or something. Um, and I learned after becoming a, a, a Democrat that you know they would call me and ask me for my opinion, which never happened as a Libertarian. But you, I'll, I'll say that the fact that nearly 70 percent of the population in your county is Democratic, you know, probably doesn't hurt things. I, I want to get on to the, yeah. the question of drugs, because um, you've been all over the map. I mean, you helped the Drug Enforcement Administration make busts back in the 1970s, even won an award for your dedication to drug enforcement. And then you wrote a book in 2001 recommending drugs be legalized. Uh, but when legalization of marijuana was on the ballot, you opposed it. Uh, what what do you believe about drugs? Well, I, you know, once again, that's kind of the, the morphing, I guess, of my personality. I, I kind of realized that we're not going to win or change people's minds about drugs by making them illegal, by arresting people. We were arresting a million people a year for marijuana violations uh, back in the 70s, and it was still getting worse. And so I, the laws don't work when it comes to telling people what they can put in their bodies. They just don't work. And and, uh, the sooner we realize that, the the sooner we'll come to a solution on these drug epidemic waves that keep on assaulting our country, whether it's methamphetamines or currently the opiates, whatever. We can't, we we have to develop other systems, education and mental health systems that can convince people or make people understand why they're using drugs to start off with. But as far as when it comes to legalization, I didn't like using the Constitution in either the amendments, both the medical marijuana amendment or hmm. the legalization for uh, personal use of marijuana. Recreational. Uh, of using the concept uh, recreational marijuana. I, I think uh, the Constitution should be reserved for a base about what our, our state means, or our nation means. But in this case, the state, because we're talking about the state constitution. You've said that it's imperative for Colorado to create services for those suffering from mental health problems, including drug addicts, and that really, you believe Colorado's sheriffs run the largest mental health facilities in the state, your jails. Anyone listening to you on that? Well, I think so. I think uh, certainly the sheriffs are, and the, the legislature to a degree is listening to it. They're trying to work systems out so that there are more mental health services available. But, you know, we just turned back the clock. I know I've been been in law enforcement for a long time now, but when I started, we had a, a proper mental health system in the state of Colorado. We had, had a great hospital in Pueblo. People that were suffering from mental illness or suicidal were immediately picked up and placed in a hospital. They weren't placed in jail. Now, over the years, that system is defunded, and there's been a lot of lawsuits about that the people were being housed in mental health hospitals too much. But the, the trouble is what the police found as the solution was that when they get a call to a person who's suffering from mental illness, rather than seeing the person is, in fact, mentally ill and needs treatment, since that's not available they go and charge the person with a crime. And once again, with 30,000 laws in the book, you can always figure out that somebody's doing some kind of crime. You know? mm-hmm. And so police officers were forced into saying, well, okay, you're, you're out here in the middle of the street with a banana in your 
here wearing no clothes, screaming at the top of your lungs. <laughs> you need to go to the hospital, but since that's not available, you go and charge them with disorderly conduct. And in turn, you find these people that are out on the street with mental health problems, basically doing life in prison, because every 30 days or 20 days or 10 days, they get picked up, they get put back in jail because of their aberrant behavior, and then they get released again uh, back out in the street where they're picked up again. And, and Only again, to have the cycle again, continue. Again. With all the success you've had running for sheriff, why not hire office? I'm the sheriff of San Miguel County. It's an honorable elected post that, that uh, I enjoy very much. Well, I appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Take care. Bill Masters of San Miguel County is the longest-serving sheriff in Colorado. He's been in office for 38 years. When you look at a map of Colorado, the state pretty much looks like a rectangle. But zoom in on the border with Utah, and you'll see a kink, an eastward jog of more than a mile. Hello, I am Peter Modreski. I'm a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. And Modreski knows all about this aberration. The story is that the boundary between Utah on the west and Colorado on the east was surveyed in 1879. And as often happens with surveys, because, of course, in those days they were using uh, measuring the distances with literally surveyors' chains, which are chains with links that they would stretch out. Sometimes these surveys diverge slightly from the exact direction that they're supposed to be going. And when they did this survey in 1879, they started in the south and they went northwards until they reached Wyoming, and when they reached the corner of the state where Wyoming was, it was determined they were off by about a mile. And they knew that somewhere in that whole length of the western border of Colorado, there was a mile error, but it wasn't known exactly where it was. So it was resurveyed in 1885 and 1893, and they found that it was down in the southwestern part of Colorado where these errors were. It was near the town of Paradox. And when the boundary was surveyed, that was adopted as the official state line between Utah and Colorado. And the story is that those surveys of where the boundary between the states are cannot be changed except by the state legislature officially adopting something. So it's not an easy thing to change. So it was left as it was with the error with this jog in the state boundaries. Peter Madreski says it's not the only bump in the border. There's also one between Colorado and New Mexico. It's a quintessentially Western experience. For 50 years, the Bar D has entertained more than two and a half million people with down-home grub, corn-pone humor, and cowboy tunes. All day I face the barren waste without the taste of water. But this year, as the Bar D marks a half century, a fire has torched nearly 55,000 acres and devastated tourist businesses in Durango. Gary Cook, a member of the Bar D Wranglers for three decades, joins me from the ranch. Hi, Gary. Well, good morning. How are you? 
I'm doing well. Nice to speak with you. The Bardee Wranglers are the main attraction on the outdoor stage, which is tucked into tall pines and rocky ridges just uh, north of Durango there. Uh, We've been hearing you guys harmonize about cool water. Have you had much of that recently with the 416 fire burning around you, scaring away tourists? Well, thankfully we have, and the fire activity has really settled down. It's calmed in the last couple of weeks, and uh, we couldn't be more uh, thankful for the firefighters and all of the their support crew that has come in and has been in our area and in the valley there north of Durango for the last, well, a little over a month now. But uh, as far as our area, it is we've had some showers in the afternoon, mm. and in fact, they have relaxed some of the uh, fire bands and our the Silverton train uh, that goes from Durango to Silverton is back as of yesterday up yeah. running and uh, going back and forth to Silverton. So it looks like the summer is is starting to come on for us. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. Big news indeed that the Silverton narrow gauge train is running again. It had been shut down for the past six weeks and. According to the Durango Chamber of Commerce, that cost the local economy $33 million in June. Uh, the the Bar D chuck wagon has actually weathered two major fires in 50 years. I mean, in 2002, the Missionary Ridge fire burned right up to the Bar D and would have torched it if firefighters hadn't applied retardant. Boy, that's absolutely correct. In fact, Cy uh, Scarborough, who was one of the, well, the founding members and uh, from he moved over from Colorado Springs, and they started working on the chuck wagon in 1967. But he and I and our wives were at the chuck wagon when the Missionary Ridge fire blew over the top of us. And we've been trying to keep our buildings wet, and we have a retractable roof over our seating area. And so, of course, that was a, a concern. And so we were doing all that we could. And when the fire came over the top of us, we had firefighters on dozers up in the trees and uh, when the local fire department got there, that they came in with their and we had water storage, which was key. Oh. But when when the firefighters arrived, they were able to put their uh, foam retardant on the trees and on our buildings. And other than just a couple of things that were kind of an outlying area, we basically had no damage at the chuck wagon because of their efforts. Well, this has gotten far too serious, Gary. We have to talk about the Bar D and the fun you have there. It's it's a, alongside about a half dozen other chuck wagon businesses in the state. It has survived big changes in entertainment tastes, uh, certainly the advent of smartphones and foodies, for that matter. Just briefly, describe the experience for us and, and how you keep it fresh. Great. Well, we open each evening. We're open from Memorial Day through Labor Day. And we open every day our gates at 5.30, and people come in, and we have like a small western town, a little village that people can go around and, uh, you know, go through our shops. We have a train. We have a shooting gallery. You know, there's a lot of activities, a playground for the kids that we continue to work on. And uh, then we're going to serve you dinner. We call everyone in for dinner at 7.30. And uh, we serve a barbecue, kind of a traditional chuck wagon meal, if there is such a thing, uh, barbecue chicken or beef, or we all have 12-ounce steaks as well, ribeye steaks. And then as soon as the dishes are cleaned up, the bar anglers, which I have been a member of since for, I guess, 30 years, Yeah, um, we take the stage, and it's a, about an hour, maybe just over an hour of Western music and and really focused on comedy. And of course, it's all family appropriate. So no one's going to be embarrassed when they leave. And 
in all of these years time, I, I heard earlier, you know, you mentioned two and a half million people. We have been so fortunate to be able to sing and perform and do all the fun things that we do at the Bardi Chuck Wagon and return customers what our business was built on. So it's worked out pretty well. You mentioned Cy Scarborough. He's 91 years old, one of the founders of the Bar D, and he's still a popular part of the entertainment. Uh, he continues to take the stage with you and with the Wranglers at the end of your performances most nights. In fact, last night I did a poem called Rendicella, Cinderella, you kind of said backwards. And one little girl there was helping me out. Every time I'd say Rendicella, she'd say, no, it's Cinderella. Cy <laughs> also told us uh, how he got his start as an entertainer. I grew up in, on a farm in Arkansas, a little truck farm. And I remember Christmas, I got a Lone Ranger guitar. And I must have been eight, nine years old. And, of course, I strummed on that thing forever until I was able to get a uh, a better guitar, and then I played fiddle in a little band back there in Arkansas for dances on Saturday night just around the neighbors. Cy Scarborough, 91 years old. Gary Cook, you've been with Bar D for 30 years, as we say said, um, and, and you say longevity is really a common denominator among the Bar D employees. What is it about this Old West experience that keeps people working there, do you think? Well, we've been so fortunate. There are actually people that work at the Bar D that have been there longer than I have. And uh -huh. uh, whether they work in our shops or they're part of a kitchen crew or uh, a family member, of course, that, that has been involved with us for many years. But I think when people come to the Bar D, they're there to have a good time. And, you know, so our employees and the people that that have been there for many, many years, if their attitude is such that, you know, they want to ensure that our guests are happy and, and we just get to have fun with them rather than trying to win them over. And, and I think that has worked out really well over the years. In spite of having all those capable hands, there had to have been some catastrophes serving hundreds of beef, beans, biscuits, spice cake meals every night for 50 years. And Sai uh, had one story for us. Let's listen. Well, we've had a few disasters. I remember one time in the early days, we accidentally got some meat from our supplier, and it was just tough as a boot. So we put a little uh, papaya in there to make it uh, a little more tender, and we got a little too much, and we had to serve mush that night. Papaya, hardly... A Western, I, maybe it is a Western food, I'm not sure. But I, I'm curious how a traditional cowboy chuck wagon handles the age of gluten-free, vegetarian, vegan, lactose intolerant, all the other food issues. Well, we will have customers that come through with, with special dietary needs. But basically what we do is our beans, for instance, have no animal fat in them. So if we have a vegetarian, of course, we just, and whatever the, the item is that, you know, they might be able to tolerate, we uh, try to have something as a backup for them, and I don't know of anyone that's ever left the, the Barty Chuck Wagon that they weren't satisfied with the meal and, and certainly didn't go away hungry. Mm. Music is a huge part of the experience there at Bardi with you and the Bardi Wranglers. You're a two-time national flat pick champion, Gary. Uh, you take the music part of the Bardi experience very seriously. 
Uh, you also incorporate a lot of humor, as you've said, especially when Psy joins in. And here's one of his favorite songs. Oh, here it comes. Here it comes. It's taking my time. Taking his time. He's a lazy rambling, rogue gambling, no good son of a gun. Now, I don't like work, and I never will. He's a no good son of a gun. I'd rather sleep than to eat my fill. He's an old good son of a gun. So I got me a job on the cab crew and the boss said, Man, I'm gonna fire you. Reckon it's just what he'll have to do. He's an old good son of a gun. Oh, here he comes. Here he comes. Just taking my time. Taking his time. He's a lazy rambling, rolling a gambling, no good son of a gun. Thanks so much for being with us, Gary. It really sounds like an escape from the modern world to some extent. It certainly is. And we, of course, invite people to come see us. But uh, hearing Cy do that actually puts a smile on my face as well. I've been really fortunate to stand next to him for the past 30 years. And I hope that conti- continues on. And as long as, as well as the other guys in the group, we have a really talented group. And it's, it's a great experience. Gary Cook has been playing with the Bardi Wranglers and working at the Bardi Chuck Wagon near Durango for 30 years. This summer, the Bardi celebrates 50 years and its deliverance from two major wildfires. Here we are in CPR's Grand Junction studio. And if you're on this side of the Continental Divide, maybe you're thinking, ah, they're just headed back to Denver. We're not going to see him again. You'd be wrong. CPR News is going to have a full-time presence on the Western Slope. And to tell us about it is... Kevin Dale here, our executive editor. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Ryan. What's the deal? (laughs) Well, we have solid freelancers that we use across the state, and they produce great stories for us. But there's nothing like having your own staff in a town. Um, They're on the ground. They're tuned into the issues in the town every single day. And you're going to get better coverage because of it. You are hiring, we are hiring a Grand Junction Western Slope reporter, as well as a Southern Colorado reporter, I guess, based in Colorado Springs. Correct. Two big parts of the state that have issues uh, particular to themselves, not just Denver metro issues. A lot of military in Colorado Springs, a lot of issues in Southern Colorado. And of course, the Western Slope is really um, its own part of Colorado with, uh, with important stories that need to be told. You came to CPR News in December to lead the newsroom. Why was this a priority? There are lots of different directions I suppose you could have gone. We well, and we are going many different directions. We're hiring <laughs> uh, a lot of position, a lot of new positions in the newsroom. But two of the key ones are regional reporters. As I said before, to to really be a statewide news agency, you need to have reporters in all parts of the state. And this is our first big step in that direction, along with some uh, other very important positions that we're hiring in Denver, on air and digital. Now, these are large swaths of the state, right, to say the Western Slope and Southern Colorado. So I imagine these are going to be reporters who are in the car a lot. Absolutely. And their job is going to be to get to know the people and the and the issues of those regions so that we can tell the most important stories. So, yeah, they will be all over the place. Um, that'll be the expectation. Going into an election, especially important, I think. These jobs are posted? They're posted on the CPR.org website, um, and uh, we're looking for the best candidates we can find right now. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. Kevin Dale is executive editor of CPR News, announcing the hire of a Western Slope and a Southern Colorado reporter. It's been really fun the past few days to sit next to folks from the Grand Junction Symphony Orchestra. They share this office on Main Street with CPR. Music director Charles Latshaw 
has a keyboard at his desk, the musical kind. And during the workday, he plays it. Right now, Latshaw is preparing for the symphony's first full opera production, Mozart's The Magic Flute. He tells me the cast is coming in from all over the country for the show, which runs July 28th and 29th. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks so much for joining us on the Western Slope. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner, and the show is at Colorado Matters. Indeed, it's been lovely to be in Grand Junction. I'm going to miss it. But as you heard, we'll have a permanent presence here. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.